0: And uh, while you're finding Psalm 85, let me just remind you that this is in book three of the Psalter. Uh, For those who maybe need uh, some brushing up on the Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms corresponds to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible in this way. There are five books of the Psalter. And so you have the first book is Psalm one through verse, uh, through Psalm 42 or 40, is it 41? I think it's 41 and then uh, Psalm 42 begins the second book of the Psalter up to uh, Psalm 72, and then Psalm 73 begins the third book of the Psalter, and that will take us uh, all the way through up, uh, just on the precip- precipice of book four of the Psalter. And so if you have a study Bible, usually they'll break those down for you so they don't have to uh, repeat them from memory where the breaks are in the Psalms. Look for those first five books of the Psalms, and they'll correspond to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. The Torah. And so we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have five books of the Psalter that would go parallel with each one of those in the Torah. As you look through the Psalms and you get the overall picture of Heaven's hymn book, you do well to look at the first Psalm, the first couple of Psalms in particular, because that will help you interpret the rest of the book, the rest of the five books. And so Psalm 1 gives us the story of the blessed man and the story of the wicked man. The wicked do not prosper, but those who are who are walking and meditating in the law of the Lord, Uh, the law of the Lord is their light. They're like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So you have a lot of imagery flowing throughout the Psalms. Also, let me uh, remind you of the poetry that we encounter in the Psalter. Hebrew poetry is different from, you know, Twinkle, Tinkle, Little Star, and it's different from Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Uh, we usually want to rhyme in English when we do poetry. We think, you know, rhyming is is uh, where we need to go. And we have sonnets, and maybe you think of haikus as poetry. That's not really rhyming, but you have a certain number of words uh, that you do in each stanza, and so that's a form of poetry. Hebrew poetry uh, really is centered and based around parallel ideas and parallel words, parallel thoughts. And so you'll have one phrase that'll... That'll say one thing, and then you'll have another phrase that'll that'll do something with that phrase, and it will either complement it or be antithetical to it. So you'll either have it building on it. And so look for those parallels as you go through the Psalms. Now the Psalms are songs, and so as songs go, there are verses. So we would say there's stanzas, and uh, and many times that stanza will take a cyclical approach, and so you'll actually work from the Outside in, and you'll find X marks the spot in the poetry, and you'll find out this is the thrust of what the psalmist really wants us to hammer on and take home with us. And it'll be in the middle of that psalm, and each area around it will support that middle idea. And so you'll work into it and then work out from it in a chiastic fashion. And so that would be a a cyclical view of some of the psalms. Now, Psalm 85. Is not one of those. Psalm eighty-five is a standard strophe psalm, so you're going to have stanzas, you're going to have verses. So just like we sang these verses, we sing a verse and then we have a chorus. We sing a verse and we have a chorus. Uh, That's how the hymns usually flow. So with this, we have three major stanzas. There are three major verses that are in Psalm eighty-five. So as you read the song, think about these verses and what the truth of each verse is. You're in Psalm 85, and uh, we'll read in verse number 1. This is to the chief musician. It is a psalm, notice, for the sons of Korah. Lord, all caps, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of Thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin Selah. Or maybe we should say Selah. (laughs) Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord. All taps Jehovah. And grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before Him, and shall set us in the way of His steps. Lord, I ask for your help as we make some observations from Psalm 85, and help us to understand the great place that this has in the Psalter as well in the life and the pilgrimage of your people. And Lord, may we as followers of Christ understand the blessings that we have by being grafted in through faith. Help us to understand your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. Because that's the spirit of this song. This song looks for and yearns for the advent of Jesus. And we say, even so, come Lord. Bring these things to pass, fully and finally, in your time according to your will, and above all, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us what we need from our daily bread in your word, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to look at the psalm, Lord willing, but before I get to that point, I really want to uh, nail down some things here on uh, perspective, okay? Okay. Uh, you're part of Broomfield Baptist Church, and uh, you, yeah, I'm talking to members here. I don't see anyone who, uh, who's not a member yet. So Broomfield Baptist Church takes a dispensational perspective on the Scriptures. We state that up forward, up front in our doctrinal statement. Now, I want to spend some time here. I don't want to bore you with the details of dispensational theology versus covenant theology. But let me say this. It is of utmost importance that you know where you stand on this issue because it will be the lens through which you view the whole of Scripture. We all put on glasses to read the Bible, so to speak, theological glasses. Now, let me clarify that by saying this. We take an inductive approach to Bible study. What that means is it's opposite to a deductive approach. So just because we have glasses on when we read the Scripture doesn't mean that uh, that we take our theological predispositions and bend the text to fit those someone who takes a deductive approach to Bible study will do that for instance the Calvinist will say well because we believe that God has elected you know those that will be saved and elected others by default then they'll face damnation forever but, but we're not going to focus on that we're going to focus on the elect because they have those glasses on they will read the scriptures and force their Theological predisposition to where every time you see election, it has to deal with salvation. Those are some of the, that's broad, okay, but that, those are some of the dangers that we face when we work deductively. We take an inductive approach. We're dispensational in our theology, but that's because we're inductive in our theology, okay? We go to the Bible first and we say, Lord, this is your word. You have an interpretation of your word. I don't bring my interpretation to the Bible. I seek God's interpretation. I want to know what God said. And so when I take that approach, there really is only one interpretation because there's one God. Now that might seem narrow-minded to some, and I would catch a lot of flack for that for not being more open-minded. And uh, many of the commentaries that I consult, you know, they take a broader view and they they put their terms, they capture them in in phrases and ways that they can speak to both audiences. I understand the tact behind that. But uh, hopefully understand where we're coming from. As we take a dispensational approach to our theology, that means we believe in dispensations of time. And, uh, I mean, you look at the Bible, it's pretty clear to me, if you just take a common sense approach, you have... God dealing with Adam in the garden and then you have God dealing with Moses and the children of Israel after he's dealt with Abraham and Isaac and then you have this day and time in which God is dealing through his church. And one day in the future, as was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, God will again use his people Israel. So though Israel through rejecting Jesus Christ as a nation has been set aside and they've been broken off of the tree that doesn't mean that God's done with them. Because as a Gentile, I was grafted into that tree by faith. And it's by the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ that that privilege comes to me. Now, I also need to understand, that does not mean that the physical promises that were made to Abraham pertain to me as a Gentile. If I believed that, then I would be alongside some other uh, pastors today that are trying to seize Palestine. <laughs> it's, um, they believe that the church has replaced Israel. That's typical of replacement theology. Replacement theology ends in atrocities such as the Holocaust. Replacement theology teaches that, in essence, the church has replaced Israel, that God has cast off Israel forever. That he'll never use Israel again. That the church now is in the place of Israel. That's covenant theology in a nutshell. And so how you view that is going to either help you see more clearly or it's going to distort how you read Psalms like Psalm 85. So with my dispensational glasses on, I'm going to read this Psalm and it's going to make sense to me. If I look at this and see, okay, um, I'm gonna take an millennial perspective, well then that means the millennium is now. It's weird because amillennialists, they don't, it's not like they don't believe in no millennial, you know, millennial means no millennial. No, they believe that the millennium is, is kind of this, uh, mysterious thing that we're in it now. And it's all spiritualized and they allegorize everything away. And so for us to take a hard, literal stance on anything in the Scriptures, whoa, that's, you know, so you'll see this when you read commentaries. If they're coming from an amillennial perspective, you'll be able to pick up on that. And then they'll kind of be vacillating, wishy-washy. Maybe it's this, they'll allegorize all kinds of stuff. If we take a literal approach, we see God used Israel. He brought them out of the Exodus and saved them with a mighty hand. He gave them His law, and He gave them the Mosaic Covenant, Now, covenant theology deals with covenants, but if we don't understand the covenants, we're not going to understand the Old Testament. So what are the covenants? Some major covenants. You have the Edemic Covenant with Adam. You have have the Mosaic Covenant. You have the Abrahamic Covenant. You have the Noahic Covenant. You have the Davidic Covenant. You have all these covenants all throughout the Scriptures. And in, in the Old Testament, covenants were cut and promises were made. So you need to also understand the difference between covenants. Now, all covenants, in an essence, are conditional in one way or another. But we differentiate the two between being conditional and unconditional. So a conditional covenant versus an unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant would be a covenant like the Mosaic covenant. Why is it conditional? Because if you study Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 34, Deuteronomy, Uh, go to the the law, go to the the book of the Mosaic law that was given, you'll find out God sets a condition on the fulfillment of the promise He made to Israel. So the condition is an if-then scenario. If Israel keeps the Mosaic law, if they keep not only the Ten Commandments, but everything else contained therein in the Pentateuch, if they keep all of that, then... Because they met that condition, the blessings will be, the land will be theirs, the land, the seed, and the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. So do you see how there's a connection even between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant? So then if there's a condition on them keeping it, what if they don't? That's where the Palestinian covenant comes in. The Palestinian covenant deals specifically with the land of Israel. Look at Psalm 85 again. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Whose land is it? Who owns the title deed to Palestine? God does. And he has chosen. See, this is where we... We can't confuse election. What is his choice? What is the election that he has made? That Israel, his beloved Israel, would someday inherit that land in its entirety. And the original promise to Abraham was given, lift up your eyes, and as far as you can see, that wherever your foot treads, that's going to be yours. Joshua didn't even realize the whole area. This would entail everything from the Nile River almost to the Euphrates, And so now we're stepping on some toes, aren't we? You familiar with what's going on in the Middle East today? What's happening over in Iraq and Iran and close to Babylon? Now you understand why preachers say, if you want to know what's going on, keep your eye on the Middle East. Keep your eye on the Middle East. That's true. It rises and falls on Israel. And so as we have our dispensational... Glasses on, we read and we see God's not done with Israel. He still has more for them. So with that, we need to understand a little bit of the history of Israel that backs this psalm. When was it written? It's to the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. Uh, Most of the sources that I consulted put this at the time of the return. So uh, they would call it a post-exilic psalm. What that means is after the exile. Which exile? Well, the Babylonian captivity. That's the exile. So after the exile, what happened? Israel, they were taken captive. The north uh, tribes fell first to the Assyrians, and then the south, the southern two tribes fell later to Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylon's. Three different deportations happened, and then the fulfillment of what Daniel had his vision for the seventy years of captivity. And we're still looking for that 70th week of Daniel. And so they would spend 70 years in a foreign land, removed from Jerusalem. Why? Because they violated the Mosaic Covenant and the Palestinian Covenant then came into effect. What's the Palestinian Covenant? Well, the Mosaic Covenant. If you keep the law, you're going to be blessed. I'm going to, you're going to have harvest. You're going to have rains. Your barns are going to be full. The land is going to yield to you, and you are going to live in peace and tranquility. I'll subdue all your enemies if you keep the Mosaic law. But they didn't. Before Moses even came down from the mountain, they had broken the Mosaic covenant. Does that make the law bad? No, it doesn't. Because the whole purpose of that was to demonstrate that no one can keep the standard of righteousness that God has set. No one can meet that bar. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not one of us can. So why would he? I mean, doesn't that seem like God setting them up for failure? What kind of God are you serving? No, the option is there. They had a free will. They could choose to obey the law or they could choose to disobey the law. Adam had a free will. He could choose to obey the commandment. Don't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. He had a choice. To make. And so the same argument applies to the Mosaic Covenant. If they keep the law, God gave them every provision, every means to be able to live in righteousness and to be able to do that law and fulfill it. It's not God's failure that He made a way of righteousness for them to walk in and they chose not to. It's not God's failure. So we can't blame Him. Because He made provision for life. But they did fail. And so this is where the land slain from before the foundation of the world comes in. Aren't you thankful that even though we have a will and we can exert that, God is still sovereign in the end? I don't know if I've got it all figured out, this balance between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. I know the Calvinists haven't figured it all out yet. And the Arminians, well, they went off a deep end on the other side of the spectrum, so am I, am I a Calvinist or Arminian? No, just call me a biblicist, okay? Can I just stay with the Bible? And see that man does have a free will. And yet God also has a sovereignty. That when I choose evil, He can still work it out for good in the end because it's to them that love Him who are called according to His purpose. What's the purpose? To be predestined, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to restore all that was lost in Adam. This is the process, you see. So how you view theology, if you look at this psalm and say, well, the church has replaced Israel. And we're marching to Zion. Then you're going to read this psalm differently than I do. We're going to have a parting of the ways. Because how can two walk together except they be agreed? But if you look at this as dealing primarily and first and foremost with the nation of Israel, and that God is going to restore them one day, 1948 was a momentous occasion. They're in the land, but they're dead bones. They've been brought up, but there's no life in them yet. Why? Because they haven't received the Messiah as a nation yet. But one day, the Bible prophesies that they will. And so, where's the church come in? It's that mystery that Paul speaks of. That valley that Daniel couldn't see. He could see the peaks, but he couldn't see the church lying in that valley. And so, as the bride of Christ, we're used of the Lord. And one of the primary purposes of Gentile believers being grafted in is to be able to reach God's people, the Jews. It's it's really interesting to me how God works that out. They rejected God. He came into his own and his own received him not. We read that this morning. They rejected him. And through their rejection, salvation comes to me. And now, because of that, who am I to think that I'm high and mighty and say, you know, I'm better than you guys? No, my heart ought to be Let me make them jealous of what God is doing through me so that they might see God's hand and come to Christ and realize the Messiah who they have rejected. And through that jealousy, you see, God is using the Gentiles then to try to reach his people, Israel, because he wants all Israel saved. And there will come a day that Paul tells us in Romans 9 that all Israel shall be saved. How's that going to happen? Because they're going to be grafted back into that tree. You know, if they've been broken off, what's not to say we couldn't be broken off? If God did it to them, could he not do it to us? We're not talking about losing salvation. We're talking about promises. So what are these promises then? If I'm grafted in by faith and if I'm grafted in through belief and the Bible says I'm a child of Abraham by faith, what are those blessings if it's not the land? If I can't go over and start tromping on Israel and say, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. I mean, that's crazy, right? That's ludicrous. You really think that, I mean, you can try it, but I guarantee you what's going to happen. I know they've got guns (laughs) and they're going to come surround you and they're going to lock you up like a looney tune you are. Because you're over there treading your feet saying, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, because I've replaced Israel. Good luck. I'll see you on the other side. You see, nobody's crazy enough to do that. But ultimately, that's the foundation of their theology. Why? Throughout the course of time, has atrocity after atrocity happened to God's people? Israel, I mean the Jewish people. No other nation on the face of the earth has gone through what they've gone through and experienced what they've went through. Whether it's at the hand of a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph or the hand of a wicked Haman who wants to annihilate all of them or a Hitler who determines that he's going to put them all to death. Why? Or, you know, Hitler is, uh, is World War II. We're kind of removed from that. But you know what? There's, a, there's still a, a caliphate. There's still an Islamic caliphate that wants Israel out of that land. They look at Jewish, Jewish people. The Quran teaches them that Jewish people are pigs. And they're supposed to be in servitude and in submission. And so while Israel was small and in submission to Allah, everything was fine. They could dwell in the land. But now since 1948, since they've been coming back and coming back into the land, you have... Muslim leaders standing up and locking arms with Hitler saying, destroy all the Jewish people in your nation and we're going to help you. And when you get down there, come here and destroy them from here. Why such a bent towards Israel? Why? Again, the kind of theological glasses you wear will determine that. It's sad to think that the church has locked arms I use that term very broadly, okay? I'm not talking about Bible-believing, dispensational Christians who are Zionists and believe that you know what we're talking about today, that God is not through with Israel, and we love the Jewish people, and we love Israel, and we we witness to them, we want to see them saved, and we come alongside them. I'm not talking about true Bible-believing Christians. I'm talking about Christendom by and large. I'm talking about the early church fathers who, with the wrong theological glasses, Believing that the church has replaced Israel. Why does Rome wear robes and, and hats and miters? And, and why do they have all of this regalia that they go through? And, and all of the ritualism and all of... Because they believe the church has replaced Israel. And so they have priests and they have a priesthood. Because the church to them has replaced Israel. And God is done with Israel. And so replacement theology changes how you view what God does with the nations. As you read Psalm 85, if you take a covenant position, a covenant theology position, which says the church has replaced Israel, you're going to read it completely different. But if you look at it and realize God's not finished with Israel, now we read it and it begins to to make a little more sense, I think. Just common sense. I'm not a scholar. I just read the Bible and I look for common sense. So I just want you to take away from that... How your theological perspective will impact how you read this psalm through those theological lenses. As I read Psalm 85, I am moved and gripped with one dominant idea through the whole psalm. Remember, we said there's three verses. Every one of those verses builds up and leads to this main idea. Here it is. Revival comes. When mercy and truth meet, and when righteousness and peace kiss. We want revival. We seek for revival. We yearn for revival. Now, I understand that many messages have been preached from this psalm just simply on the idea of revival. And I'm not against taking this psalm and encouraging God's people, encouraging the church today to seek God's revival. We sang, revive us again. And so the application comes to me, but the interpretation rests with Israel. So I think when we understand the interpretation of what revival means to Israel, we'll understand better what revival means in my personal walk with God. Because just like Israel, Paul says what happened to them was an example. It was given as an example for me. And when they turned their back on Christ in the wilderness, when Moses smote the rock instead of speaking to it, when they worshipped idols, I know, just like that song we sing, sing that hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If it can happen to them, my friend, it can happen to me. And you and I don't live too far apart. And you can drift away from God. And you can wind up living, uh, you know, spiritually speaking, in bondage to the world, just like they lived in bondage to Nebuchadnezzar 70 years in Babylon. You can live in bondage to this world as a Christian, a child of God, blood-bought, born again and yet backslidden to the point where you're living in God's chastisement and just miserable in your life, and your heart's hanging on the willows, and you've got no more song to sing. For Zion. Why Why are they going to ask a song of me? We can relate with them in our walk with God too. But I'm thankful that God's not done with them. And if you're still breathing, my friend, God is not done with you. And you might have wandered astray. You might have put something in front of God in your life just like they did. And you may have given into to idolatry. Even though God warned you and said if you do that, it's going to lead to a path of misery. You chose that. I'm glad that there's a way back to life. There's a way for those old dry bones to be resurrected and to be revived again. One of the key words that's threaded throughout this psalm is the word turn or return. It's the Hebrew word shuv. And so to turn again. And you'll notice the psalmist is using it, weaving these ideas together, connecting the idea of there has to be a turning. Lord, You've got to turn your anger. But that's not going to happen. The wrath is not going to turn until we turn from our sin. And we realize that we're the ones that have gone away from God. Lord, thou hast. That's has gone by. I remember. You know, there was a time when I first got saved. Man, I was on fire for God. The Lord was so favorable to me. Now, that's my application. Do you see how that works? That was application. What's interpretation? wasn't there a time in Israel's history when he was favorable to that land? Absolutely. And it brought forth abundance to them. When they went in, I mean they they approached that land in unbelief. But when those spies brought back that report, there were grapes of ascal there. There's a land where milk and honey flows. They didn't have to build houses. They were already built for them. They, they just went in and inhabited the land. And it yielded its bounty. It yielded its fruit. They never had life. They had plenty of honey. They had plenty of milk. They had all of the, the dainties that they, their heart could desire while they were in the land. But their heart went a-horning after other gods. And so the psalmist begins by remembering the good days. There were days when, when we did what we were supposed to, God showed up, when we kept His word, he did his part. Thou hast been favorable unto thy land. You look at that land now, and uh, it, it's, been, it's changing because it, Israel is going in and they're irrigating, and, and, and they're just amazing people. I mean, they're brilliant people. And their irrigation system's over there. They're turning the desert green. And uh, I stood in, in, uh, on, the, on the shore of the Dead Sea and, and saw firsthand how life can come out of death. When there's nothing that can grow there, then you have this sweet water that comes in and everything's green like even. I can't describe it. I mean, words can't describe it. You just have to be there to see it. Fish, species of fish that they can't find anywhere else on the earth just popped up there. They're still studying it. They're still trying to figure it out. How in the world? Because God was favorable to the land. Is there anything that you can't grow in Israel? My ask, my, my wife asked our guy. Uh, yeah, Danny said. He said, we can't grow coconuts. We can grow the palm trees, but for some reason, the coconuts just won't grow on them. <laughs> they can grow the dates. They can grow the, the figs, bananas. I mean, you name it. Whatever you want to grow, it grows there. Except coconuts. can't get coconuts. Strange. Maybe that was the forbidden fruit. I don't know. <laughs> just kidding. That's just speculation. Don't take that to the back. Um, thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. What lenses are you reading that through? You see, if you have a messianic lens... If you look at the psalmist here saying in faith, there's going to come a day when the captivity is going to turn. When was the captivity of Jacob turned? Well, Ezra led a group of Jewish people back to Jerusalem. And they went back and the first thing they rebuilt was the altar. And as they got back, they began rebuilding. And then they rebuilt Zerubbabel's temple. And the old folks that were there, the elderly people, they wept. You remember that part? Why did they weep? It's connected to this psalm. They wept because they remembered the former glory. What's the glory of God? To a Jewish person, it's His presence. It is the Shekinah. It's when Solomon prayed with his hands lifted, standing toward heaven, and dedicated that temple, and the smoke filled the room, and God's presence came down, and he dwelt with Israel between the cherubim. God's presence was there. Whether in the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud, God's presence was there. And they had God with them. Where can God dwell with man? Sinful mankind. Between the cherubim. The mercy seat. Which is a picture of Jesus Christ. the propitiation for our sins. Paid in full. Notice the, the, the thought here of sins being covered. So the question is, with what are you trying to cover your sins? Israel's sins had to be covered and atoned for every year. But there's a distinct difference between atonement, which is looking forward in faith, and propitiation, which is looking backward in faith. Atonement is an Old Testament term that talks about covering sin until Messiah comes to pay for it once and fully and finally for all. And He died once for all, Hebrews 9 tells us. Propitiation doesn't just mean covering for a time waiting for fulfillment propitiation means paid in full it is finished telestai he hath done that's propitiation and so it's not just covered over it's paid for fully and finally so with what are you covering your sins if you cover your sins you're not prospering the bible says there's no other way that we can cover our sins You see, Psalm 85 says, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. So who paid for their sin? Israel did. Israel did, didn't they? I mean, God said it would happen that they would go into captivity for 70 years. And then you have a prophecy given by Isaiah that there's a man that's going to take over Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus by name, and under him the people will be able to return. They did their time. For every year of Jubilee that they skipped, for every Sabbath they neglected, for every violation of the Mosaic law, God took them to prison, put them in jail, and they paid their sentence, they paid their fine, because God had told them to let the land rest at certain intervals, and they ignored His law. Back to the land, the land. The land that was promised to Abraham. The land, the seed and the blessing. We inherit the spiritual blessings. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's a spiritual blessing through the new covenant. So we talk about the New Testament, the new covenant. Who was that cut with? Same people that all the other covenants were cut with, with Israel. The new covenant. When do we get revival? We have revival. We have restoration of life when mercy and truth meet. Where did that happen? It happened on Calvary. That's where revival comes from. Apart from Jesus Christ, I'd be dead and lost in my sins. And see, revival will come for Israel fully and finally when they realize mercy and truth happened at Calvary. We've already put that together, but they are blinded to that. When does revival come? When righteousness and peace kiss each other. What a phrase. I could think about that forever and never figure it all out. But the parallel idea is here. Mercy and truth. Righteousness and peace. Do you see the parallelism? Mercy and truth. They met when Jesus died for our sins. Righteousness and peace. When's that going to kiss? It's going to kiss when Jesus comes again. And we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. Righteousness, God looking down from heaven, and peace on the earth when they meet, when they kiss. You see that? You see the coming of Christ? Oh, if Israel could only have hindsight to be 2020 for them with this truth, I mean, we, we say it like this, don't we? They missed the first advent because all they could see was the Messianic, the millennial reign. They missed Bethlehem. Well, not really, because they said, you know, Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem. They understood the prophecies. But they missed the fact that Jesus fulfilled it. And they don't see Him as that first advent as we do. You see how that is blinded them? And yet, I can see both advents right here. Because He has to come the first time to pay for sin. The second time, He comes conquering. And this is where righteousness and peace kiss. What a beautiful song. So let's look at it. I've filled you in as best as I can with these fleeting moments on post exilic Israel and their history that led them up to that to be in captivity and how they're yearning to be restored to Palestine. They're yearning for that day when God's presence will once again be in Zion, be in Jerusalem, and, and the whole world will see God's glory through them. That's what revival is to them. And we can relate with that. Can we not? Paul says that the temple of God is among us today. We are the temple of God. So where is the Shekinah glory today? Where is the glory that Israel so longed for and so yearned for that had left them? It's with the church. And that's why it's so important that we not cast Israel off as forgotten like the Roman church did. That led to the Crusades. Millions upon millions of Jews slaughtered for the cause of Christ because they're infidels and they've They've turned their back on God. and God's done with them, and we replaced it—hogwash. And it's based off of the early church fathers. That you have all these things leading up to the Holocaust, and I mean, just what a nightmare! What a nightmare! And to think that people would justify doing this to anyone—only just because they're Jewish, just because they're Jews. No other nation. So let's look at this psalm and see how it flows. Israel's yearning for revival, for restoration. And that's not going to happen fully until Christ comes. We get that. Sin's covering leads to the soul's communion. This would cover verses 1 through 5. Sin has to be atoned for. It has to be covered. Notice they point out the return from captivity in verse 1. The forgiveness of sins in verse number two, which leads to the purging from God's wrath in verse three. Do you see how the three correlate together? We have a change in our heart. We wind up in bondage and we say, Lord, we sinned. Your word is true. I agree with you. We repent. We turn from that and we find forgiveness of sins. God says, welcome back. I've forgiven you. I no longer hold your iniquity over you. I've washed it through blood and his wrath is stayed. How do we escape the wrath of God? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. That washes our sins away, washed in the blood. Notice in verses 6 through 11, this is the second verse, the second stanzas, if you will. So verses 1 through 5 is the first verse of the song. I don't want to confuse you with using the word verse. Are you following me? So the first verse of the song is verses 1 through 5 of the song. I lost you. Okay, stanza. We'll use stanzas and verses. Maybe that'll click. Verses 1 through 5 is the first stanza. Got it? The first stanza of the song is verses 1 through 5. The second stanza of the song is verses 6 through 11. And in here we see in verse 6 there's a prayer for revival. Verse 7, there's a pleading for mercy. Verse number 8 there's an acknowledgement, hearing from heaven. Then 9 through 11, looking for God's glory to be restored. I went faster than that. Let's break it down bit by bit. These first two stanzas move our thoughts toward the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. We have to have our sins covered or we remain in our sins. And that's the only way back to communion with God. That's the way out of captivity through Christ. Forgiveness of sins purged from God's wrath. Now verse 6 through 11 turns to a believer's prayer and hope. Now, I chose my words carefully there. A believer's prayer through hope. This is not an unsaved person calling out for salvation. These are God's people saying, Lord, we're looking for You. We pray for revival. Verse number 6. You're never going to have revival if you don't start seeking it yourself. Right? That's where it begins. Lord, send a revival. Let it start in me. Individually, we can have revival. Corporately, we can have revival in our church if we'll understand better what it means. Verse number six, "Wilt thou not revive us again? Who does the reviving? Who's the one? Who's the agent that performs the reviving? God is. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Without His intervention... There is no life. We need Him. And they acknowledge that. And they say, Wilt Thou not revive us again? Who's the us? It's not the church. It's Israel. See how the lens affects how I read it? That Thy people may rejoice in Thee. Lord, take us back to that place where where we were with You in in fullness and all Your bounty and all Your blessings, Lord. Bring that back. Show us Thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us Thy salvation. So here we see them pleading for mercy. If you're going to have revival, you're going to have to come on God's terms and that's through mercy. You don't deserve anything from God. You're in sin. All you deserve is wrath and judgment and if you're going to see God's grace, it's because you're pleading for mercy. Lord, it's only by your mercy and I'm glad His mercy is everlasting. It can never be exhausted. Every morning it's new. Hallelujah for that because I use a lot of it every day. Notice how they're going to listen. Verse number eight. I will hear. This is intensive. This is emphatic. And so while you're asking God for revival, Israel, and while you are pleading for his mercy, acknowledging in agreement that you violated his word and you deserve everything that's come to you, you get all that. Now you're saying, I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear. God needs to show up. Hearing from heaven. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. I can see all believers through all ages right there in the word saints. Can't you? If you have your dispensational glasses on, you can. He'll speak peace unto his people, Israel. He'll bless all his saints. I mean, right there, I see encapsulated the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem and the gates. There's no contradiction there. One has not replaced the other. The bride is the church. The wife of Jehovah is Israel. They're both present in the New Jerusalem. There's no problem. I have no contradiction with that. It makes perfect sense, common sense to me. When I think about unfulfilled prophecy that is yet to be that John the Revelator gave. It all clicks. I will hear. Do you really want to hear from God? Then you need to start acting like it. You do. He will speak peace. This is future unto his people and to his saints. So, what's the message from heaven? It's the same message Jesus gave to a a man that was lame that couldn't make it to the water, and he told that man on uh, by the pool of Bethesda. He said, "Rise, take up thy bed and walk." The man goes away, and everybody asks him, "Who did this for you?" and this, you know, this man, Jesus, he, he did it. And strangely, he meets Jesus in the temple again. And in John chapter 5, in verse number 14, you know what he told that man? He told him the same thing that he told that woman that was taken in adultery in the very act in John chapter number 8. Remember, in that account, Jesus... He, you know was riding on the ground pretending like he didn't even hear what they were saying you know the mosaic law says that we ought to stone this woman well where's the man that's what i want to know you know there was it takes two to tango and so where's he at he's nowhere to be found and yet they're going to stone the woman for her uh, act of sin and she's been taken red and so jesus's words you remember those those faithful words he said let him that is without sin cast the first stone who's the only person that could have thrown the rock that day And who didn't throw a rock that day? One by one, from the eldest to the youngest. Some have speculated he was writing their names in the sand. I don't know. I don't know what he was writing. The Bible doesn't say. But here, the God of heaven, manifest in human flesh, who knows every wrong thought, every idle word, everything, can read them through and through. says, if you're without sin, you can cast the first stone and you'll be justified in doing that. Not one of them could. Not one of them could. And so that woman is free to go. And what did Jesus tell her? The same thing God tells Israel here. Don't go back to the pig trough. Stop sinning. Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. That's what he told the man by the pool of Bethesda. What could be worse than dying in your sins for all eternity? Missing out on blessing, suffering temporal judgment, loss of future reward, having to hang your head in shame before the God who saved you with tears in your eyes because you're empty handed before him who gave you everything. Having nothing to enter into heaven with. Nothing. Because you went and lived a life of sin after he saved you. That's misery. That's misery. Same thing he told the woman uh, that was taken in adultery. What did he tell her? Go and sin no more. You read it right here. He's, he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Hey, when you get revival, why don't you learn a lesson from where you went and determine, I am not going back there? This is how it would play out for Israel. Yes, Lord, we did allow something to take your place in our life. You said thou shalt have no other gods before me. What did we do? We went after other gods. So what is it that has led you into this bondage? What is it that you need to avoid and stay away from in your life? Maybe then you can see God's glory restored. Verses 9 through 11. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him that glory may dwell in our land. What is their heart's desire? What is their yearning for the Shekinah to be back in Israel? Where's that glory today? Has the light been dimmed in your house? Has your family, has your home been darkened because you've allowed sin in the door? If you're going to seek revival, you might need to do some purging and some cleansing so that you can have a place where God can dwell again. Get that stuff out. Take care of it. Just between you and God, just just go today. I mean, before the sun even goes down tonight, you know you've got some stuff. Go get rid of it. How can light dwell with darkness? Get it out. Walk with God. Surely His salvation is nigh Him that fear Him. Do you fear Him? Then He'll save you. And you'll have His glory with you. Now, eventually this will come when Christ descends from heaven again. At that second advent. And he'll come traveling from Basra all the way across. And his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And it will split between his feet. And everyone will be humbled before him in that day. And in that day the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. Oh, the wrath has to come, yes, but the Lord will return. And the presence of God. I mean, think about that. Simeon understood that in his day when that little baby child, he held him in his arms. And he said... Messiah has come into his temple. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Anna understood that. The prophecies of old time had been fulfilled right before her very eyes. Let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. That's what Simeon said. (laughs) It's going to happen, Lord. Think about Christ standing in Solomon's porch. The glory of God back right where Israel yearned for it to be, and yet they still missed it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, would I not have taken thee under my wing as a hen with her chicks? But ye would not. Ye would not. Revival's only going to come when you want it, when you're ready to get right with God, and you're looking for His glory to be restored. Mercy and truth met together. Bethlehem in a manger. Mercy and truth met together. The God of heaven became a man. Lived a sinless life and went to Calvary and died for the sins of mankind. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. When is peace going to come to the world? When Jesus is on the throne of David like was promised to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That Davidic covenant. When is that going to happen? When Jesus comes again. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. Righteousness looking down from heaven. Truth spring. You see the the vividness, the imagery there of them meeting and kissing. (laughs) Can you imagine as Jesus is sitting on the throne of David, ruling in a reign of righteousness and peace for a thousand years, and God in heaven smiling on the earth and saying, finally, it's fulfilled all of it. Every jot and every tittle. Righteousness and peace. kiss." The goodness of the Lord is what leads us to repentance, Paul said. And we see in this third stanza, this third and final stanza of the psalm, God's provision and guidance. Verse 12 and 13. It's a short stanza, I know. It's only two verses. But boy, does it not speak to the goodness of God? God is good all the time. God's been good. And He will continue to be good. Notice the psalmist's words. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. In our land. What? Our land? It's his land, right? Yeah, but who did he choose to give it to? Not the church. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. The land doesn't belong to the church. Whose land is it? It's Israel's land. Oh, but don't you know that the 12 apostles are going to sit in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel? I don't have all that figured out. I don't know how it's all going to work, but we're going to even sit in judgment over angels someday. Can we not discern some of these things here? Is there not someone spiritual enough among you? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 to be able to do that. The Lord is going to give that which is good. The land is going to be restored like it was in Eden. And our land shall yield her increase. This is happening right before our very eyes. We are watching prophecy being fulfilled. As I described to you the state of Israel. Now notice verse number 13. What's the path? Righteousness shall go before Him... And shall set us in the way of his steps. Is Matthew chapter 7 coming to mind? I hope it is. It's always interesting to see how the Lord connects all these things together as I'm studying and getting ready to preach. Jesus is about to tell us in Matthew 7 about the two ways the broad way and the straight way. What's the straight way? It's the way of righteousness. And notice, it's righteousness that goes before him, it paves the way. If you want the way to peace, if you want the way to revival, walk in his word. Walk in his righteousness. The way of righteousness is the way of peace. Okay, I've given you a lot. Let me remind you sin's covering leads to the soul's communion. You want fellowship with God? You need to come through the blood, you need to return from your captivity. And come back to God. Get forgiveness for your sins. 1 John 1, nine, And then the chastisement from God can be lifted from your life. Then you'll be able to look to Him and pray to Him in hope and faith and ask Him, Lord, bring me back to that place where I used to be with You. Bring me back to that closeness, that nearness. I'm asking You for revival, Lord. Bring me back to life. Let me live for You again. Let me be on fire for You again. Lord, give me your mercy. I'm pleading with you. Don't let me go, Lord. I need your mercy. And I'm not going to stop until I hear from heaven and I know you've heard me. Verse number 8. And I'm looking, Lord, for your glory to be restored in my life. I want you in my home. I want you in my heart. I want you in my community. I want you in my church. Lord, I'm tired of living my life away from you. I want you in the middle of it all. Come back, Lord. Come back. provision is promised. God will give you goodness and He'll give you guidance. And if you'll stay tender to Him, He'll say, This is the way. This is where you go. This is, this is the right path. Stay on this path. This is where life can be found. This is the way of peace. And the whole world can be tumultuous around you and yet you're in a place of prosperity and peace. Not health and wealth gospel. I'm talking about true, godly prosperity that circumstances can't change or take away from you. You are content in walking with Jesus and you have everything you need because you're right on that path where God wants you to be. That's the place. And so, I invite you, let's seek personal revival. Let it start in me, Lord. As we seek that, we do so following Israel's example. If God's going to do it for them, surely He can do it for me. If they got away from Him and He's going to restore them back to a right relationship, surely I can have that relationship restored. Surely God's not cast me off. Surely God's not done forever. Friend, don't wait. Let God revive you. And live in hope. That one day we'll be done with this world. Because Jesus is going to come again. We'll be done with sin. We'll be done with it all. And pray as John the Revelator did. Even so. Come Lord Jesus. Come. Emmanuel. Oh come. O come. Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. Do you yearn for Christ. The way that his people yearn. Are you broken over sin? Then you're in a place where you're ready for revival. Revive us again, Lord.